I'm Amy Antonucci, welcoming you to our True Tales Live Zoom show on October 26, 2021. Thanks to all of you watching and listening, and a special thanks to those who are here in our live online audience. Welcome. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us to all bridge differences and build under, understanding and respect for each other. We're so happy to be here with you, even still on Zoom. We have a few suggestions for making the most of the online format, things that have been working well for us over this past year or so. We really believe that storytelling is an exchange between tellers and listeners. So here's how you can help us keep that going. First of all, if you keep your video on, which we invite you to do, feel, you know, to you can really pump up your physical reactions to connect with others. So if you are shocked, you can be shocked. And if you are cheering people on, cheer them on and just go ahead and use, you know, the screen and your body to communicate and connect with each other. You can also express your reactions in the chat box, which we save and share with our tellers later and have um, heard really good feedback that people love getting that kind of um, feedback and support about their stories. Also in the chat, you can start putting some questions that you have for the tellers about their stories. After our three tellers wrap up, we're going to have a short time to do some Q&A. So I'll pull your questions from the chat for that. So our theme for tonight is harbingers. Now harbingers simply means something that announces the approach of another or is a forerunner of something else. Often harbingers have a spooky reputation, which is probably why it occurred to us to use them as the October theme. But harbingers are often neutral or positive, such as early blooming flowers and lengthening days that are harbingers of spring. And the stories that we are going to have to hear tonight are definitely not scary ones. They're more adventurous moments in our tellers' lives, ones that we happen to know, even if they weren't the first, were really far from the last in their journeys. We're harbingers of future, future adventures as well. We'll hear Tina Charpentier, Beverly Schwartz, and Nina Lasiga tonight. First, Pat Spaulding is going to be on. She's our MC for the evening and she'll introduce each teller to you. So please join me in the, that big welcome, big visible welcome for Pat. Yay, Pat. Alrighty, thank you. Um, <clears throat> as Amy said, harbingers, uh, especially this time of year, are often considered kind of spooky, but they're not spooky. Some arrive innocently enough as a result of boredom or curiosity. Uh, Tina might speak to that. Others may land in a blast of emotion. I'm thinking Beverly's story might fit into that category, or maybe just following a small urge that morphs into a stronger desire and then into a passion, Nita. However they arrive, a harbinger leads toward something else, something unexpected. So let's see where they'll take us tonight. First up, we have Tina Schappentier, who is married and living in Dover, New Hampshire with her wife, 
Ellen. Tina enjoys spending time with her grandchildren, as well as kayaking, hiking, traveling, and exploring. She looks forward to a healthier world than what we're living in right now, in which she can continue her adventures. But for now, Tina will share one of her past travel stories with us back in 1981, when she lived in the kingdom of Bahrain, a small island nation in the Middle East, where one day she met the king, the king of Bahrain. Well, almost. Let's find out more in Tina's story titled appropriately, The King. <laughs> okay, Tina, come on over. Thanks, Pat. So it was back in 1981, long time ago now, that I lived in the kingdom of Bahrain, that tiny island country in the Persian Gulf. And it was led by Sheikh Isa bin Salman al-Khalifa. And I did almost meet him one day. Uh, see, my best friend, Brenda, and I were both newlyweds then to Navy guys. And we were learning how to navigate this Middle Eastern world we both found ourselves in. We kind of had a tough time adjusting too. I mean, everything was so different and hot and remote. Plus, I mean, we didn't have any of these great methods of communications that we have today. I mean, we didn't even have a phone line to talk with each other. And Bahrain, while as strange as it was to me, was at least not as restrictive as other Muslim countries. I mean, women could drive, they go to school and have a job even. Other religions were accepted and even alcohol was allowed, thankfully. <laughs> uh, men wore customary Arab type clothing there. You know, they had a thobe and gathra and women wore the abayas, the long gown-like coverings and headscarf, but we were not required to wear them, thankfully, but just dress respectfully. Well, Brenda, she was from Arkansas and she was friendly and fun, easygoing. She was a great friend to have. She was caring and gentle. And her husband, Bosco, well, he came by really late one night to our flat. Again, no phones. And he said he and Brenda had a row and Brenda was really extra down in the dumps. And I was worried about her, you know, so I took our little beater car over to their flat. When I got there, she was barefoot and wearing a pretty Bahrain dress like she always did, but her face was red and tear-stained. She'd been crying a lot. So we sat and talked for a while, and then I suggested maybe we'd go for a walk or something so she might feel better. Well, want to go see the sunrise, she said. Well, sure. I mean, that would be a positive move. So she filled a thermos with some cocktails, and away we went. We went to this desert location near the Tree of Life where we'd attended a couple of group desert parties before. The awesome tree of life is this huge tree. It's like over 400 years old and it grows in the middle of the desert with no known water source. It's a really cool thing. It's like the only tree out there. So they call it the tree of life. And getting there seemed like a really long ride, but only because everything's relative, right? I mean, it was really only about 20 miles or so, but the island's only 10 miles by 30 miles anyways, but because we rarely went anywhere, it felt like a ride, you know? Kind of like going somewhere during the COVID lockdown, if you know what I mean? Well, the party area that we were going to was in the sheltered part of the desert and the directions were like, well, go to the Awali roundabout, take the dirt exit and go past Superman's house, 
which was really an industrial complex for aluminum, but it was it was always all lit up and it looked like the Christopher Reeves version of Superman's Crystal Palace, if you remember that old movie. Um, so you go past, you know, Superman's house. And then when the tree of life is on your right, you turn sharply back to the left and drive through the desert a little ways and you'll come to this ringed hill area that's like a hundred feet up high. And you're kind of hidden in there and it's all rough gravel. So it was like 4 a.m. by now and we were going to climb that steep, rugged hill to watch the sunrise. But Brenda was still barefoot. Well, we climbed anyways, but we used my sandals in like a leapfrog method. You know, like I'd climb up 10 feet or so, take off my sandals and throw them back to her. And she'd put them on and go up past me and then throw them back, et cetera. You know, and when we finally got to the top, we sat there and we had the cocktails and we talked and we laughed and we talked and she was definitely feeling better, more her chipper, kind self. And man, the sunrise. It was, uh, you know, the humidity of the Gulf air was, gave it this gorgeous red haze. It was just beautiful, just beautiful. And it was around 530 now, you know, and, but when that sun came up, the air immediately started to warm up too. So we did the leapfrog sandals, leapfrog thing back down the hill because it was getting pretty hot. And we were filthy, dirty, sweaty now after being out in the desert all night and it was hot. So I said, wouldn't it be nice to be able to jump in the Gulf, you know, cool off a bit? It's like, yeah, but you know, we couldn't go right where we were because we were in the desert, it was limited. But since we're on that side of the island, we thought, let's go look for Sheikh Isa bin Solomon Al Khalifa's beach. We'd heard a lot about it. I mean, the Sheikh's Beach was legendary, actually. We'd never been there before. So we drove in that direction, just trying different side roads to find it. The first road had this big sign with big Arabic lettering on it, red lettering. Do you think that might say keep out? I mean, we don't know, you can't read Arabic, right? <laughs> but it seemed like that. Well, we went a little bit further, but then they went, big oil wells and pumps and all this stuff. So I, I turned the car around, but then we had to stop and wait for a herd of camels to go by. And there was this old man herding them. He had a staff and a turban and thobe, and he had a big white mustache and beard and Nike sneakers. But so I asked him, you know, can we get on one of the camels? Cause I really want to picture me on a camel, but he smiled and he pointed to his watch like, like maybe we needed an appointment with him or something. I don't know. Or he didn't have time. But then he said a bunch of stuff in Arabic. But again, we don't, I don't know anything about Arabic. So I still have no idea what he said. So we just got back in the car and waited. And we kept going when they cleared away. The next dirt road we took, took us to this huge date farm. Big palm tree forest. It was just beautiful. Well, we welcomed the shade at this point. I mean, our little car had no amenities especially not AC, and it was pretty hot. So we came up on a man walking down this road. He had a turban on too, and a thobe, and a little white goatee and really, really wrinkled face. So I stopped and said, can we go swimming down here, down this road? Is there a beach down here? He smiled and he got in the back seat. 
oh my God, he got in the car. Brenda and I looked at each other like, what the heck? And he leans forward and he points. So I drove. I mean, you know, so he pointed to turn off the road. So I turned and we eventually came to this big cement structure. It was, it was like a house foundation. It was full of freezing cold, clear, fresh water. Must have been spring fed or something. I don't know. And he's motioning for us to go in there and swim. Well, I'm not going to do that, right? I don't know. So we got back in the car and I thanked him, but he got in too. So we went down the dirt road again and we went left and we came upon this little small hut and he got out and he said a whole bunch of stuff in Arabic. But again, I don't know what he said, but I said, thank you. And we took off. I mean, Wow. But you know what? That road did lead to the Sheikh's speech. It did. There was a gatehouse and the guards, there were armed guards there and they took our cameras, but they let us go in. It was barely like 7 a.m. or so by now. There was a parking lot there with one other car in it. So we got out this beach. Wow. I mean, the water was just brilliant turquoise blue and it was flat, flat and the sand was really white and soft, you know, like powdery soft, like it would squeak when you walk on it. It was awesome. Rumor is that the shake had it brought in from Florida. Who knows? But the place was loaded with flowers, deep reds and yellows and well, every color you can imagine. There was even a lawn going up to the palace, a lawn. Nobody had grass there. It's a desert. But they had a lawn going up to this huge palace building and they had balconies like on the second floor. They must have had amazing views from there. Well, this beach was only open to Westerners. Apparently, the shake like Western women in their bikinis. That's also apparently why they don't allow cameras, because I guess someone got a photo of him once with a British woman and it made their tabloids and, you know, all that goes. So anyway, we seemed to be the only people there. So we jumped in with our clothes on and everything. And how did that feel good? Well, I'll never forget how great that felt. So then we walked out on this very long pier there that was, when we were pretty far out, it was absolutely beautiful out there. But then we looked back and there he was. No kidding. There he was. Sheikh Issa bin Solomon Al-Khalifa himself standing there at the end of the pier with a woman, no less. Oh no, what are we gonna do, Brenda says. I mean, we look like crap. We look like drowned rats. We can't meet a king like this. So we, we jumped off the pier and swam back to the beach and ran over to the car. And yeah, and that's as close as I ever got to meeting a king. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, introducing us to, what was his name again? Sheikh Issa bin Solomon Al-Khalifa. Oh man, I love hearing that name. That's a, <laughs> that's a name for a king, Tina. Um, yeah, that story made me feel hot and cooled off and ready for story number two. Thank you. Okay, coming up next, we have Beverly Schwartz. She's from Albany, Albany, New York. She was an elementary school teacher and part-time administrator for 35 years. And during her teaching career, I thought this was pretty interesting, she won the 1990 Krista McAuliffe Award for creating a new hands-on science program that she named STEM. I'm sure you've all heard of that for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. This innovative program is now used all over the world. 
When Bev retired, she became a storyteller of personal tales about her classroom experiences and daily true life adventures. She always enjoyed traveling on her school breaks and tonight she'll tell us what happened while trying to return from a vacation on a plane ride that went terribly, terribly wrong. Her story is titled, I Won't Get Off This Plane. Well, tell it like you mean it, Beverly. Let's welcome Beverly Schwartz. Okay, good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Great, okay. I won't get off this plane. I won't get off this plane. I won't get off this plane. No, no, no. And to my amazement, the whole 400 people on the plane said, we won't get off the plane. They were chanting with me. We won't get off the plane. We won't get off the plane. And I turned around and I saw from the corner of my eye, the captain or the co-captain, and he had come up to see what was happening. So I kind of quietly sat down. Oh no, I had that terrible feeling in my stomach. What did I start? Well, how did this happen? Where did we get to this point? I had gone for a week in the Caribbean on my winter vacation from school. I had a great week and we were supposed to stay till New Year's day. But the evening before New Year's Eve, we got a message, everyone from the 400 of us that were on the plane, which was staying in different hotels, were going to be picked up around 7.30 and our plane was going to get leave early in the morning instead of late in the evening. So we got picked up and we were brought to the quote airport. It was like a hangar with wooden benches, no water, no food and one bathroom. That was it. What do we do? So we sat after we got picked up, all 400. We got to know each other really well because one hour went by, two hours went by, three hours, four hours, five hours. We were, why were we taken here so early? And then what happened was a plane does come in and oh my goodness, great. Because at that point I was getting a little tired, thirsty, hungry, and irritable. And then the, off the plane comes a crew and they go into a van, a guy waves them off and off they go. Hey, we're supposed to be taking off in this plane. Okay, so we wait again. Another hour goes by and then a guy comes in. The guy that waved them off, Sarinara, to the pilot and crew. Well, they sent us the wrong crew and they have to, can't be up in the, you know, they can't be up in the air so long. So we're waiting for a new crew, but you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna put you on this plane so that as soon as this crew gets here, which we're told is gonna to be real soon, we'll take off for New York. So we schlepped our bags, left them on the runway and went and sat in the plane. There was no air condition, no electricity, and it was hot. One hour went by. Two hours went by. Finally, in the third hour, the crew gets there. They apologize to us. I'm sorry you had to wait so long. Everyone was pretty miserable, hungry, tired, thirsty. And we started taking off. We were given some water and some peanuts. And we said, okay, at least we're on our way. 
But then it happened. I was sitting in the first row behind where the stewardesses do all the preparations. I have good ears. I used to be able to hear my kids behind my back and even recognize who was talking. And I heard the following. The following was, these poor people, they've been up since early this morning, I hear, and they're expecting to go to New York and we're not going to New York, we're going to Jamaica. And the other waitress says, what? Yeah, there's a plane load of people in Jamaica and they're sitting here waiting for this plane to go to New York. We have to get everyone off this plane. And this plane load of people are going to go tomorrow, tomorrow night when we find a plane for them to New York. Over my dead body, I'm thinking, they can't treat us like this. So I turned around and I used my teacher voice. Can I have everyone's attention? I think people were a little surprised or shocked that I was doing something like that. Everyone became quiet. You could have heard a pin drop. Well, I told him the story and I said, I'm not going to Jamaica, I'm going to New York. I'm still not getting off this plane. And that's when everyone started shouting. So here I am now, I'm sitting there quietly looking down, trying to avoid the captain's eyes. And he gets on the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, I apologize, but this woman is correct. We are not going to Jamaica. We have to go, we're not going to New York, we're going to Jamaica. I knew I was right, I'm saying to myself. He says, but we need people to volunteer to get off in Jamaica because there are people that need to go to New York tonight. And we're gonna ask you when we land, who can get off? Everyone went, oh, you can hear the grumbling. So we continued to approach Jamaica and I'm looking out the window, uh-oh, my stomach again. There's police cars with red lights, there's a fire truck with firemen. What did they think? I was going to burn down the plane and an ambulance. And all that went through my mind is they're going to bring me to a hospital. Aha, he, he, ho, 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 hum, to the funny farm. Because they think probably I'm crazy at this point. Well, we get on the ground. Some police come up and the ambulance driver comes up. And the captain comes out of the where they fly. And they say, ladies and gentlemen, we went volunteers of people to get off so that other people can get on the plane and go to New York tonight. I'm just shaking my head. And five people in the back of the plane say, oh, we'll volunteer. And they started walking through the plane aisles. Boo, hiss, everyone was going, traitor, traitor, you should stick with us. Well, they left. And then the policeman said to us, well, we can't let you leave without cleaning the plane. It's federal regulations. We still have to get you off to clean the plane. And I'm saying, hey, once we get off the plane, they're not gonna let us on. And I did my teacher thing again. I said, you see that plastic bag over there? Bring it, walk up and down the aisle. We'll throw our garbage in there. And that we all call it clean plane. And we wanna go to New York. And everyone was saying, clean the plane, clean the plane. And they did. They, I think they didn't want an international incident. They didn't want this to get out to the public, what 
load full of people were doing on a plane. So after they cleaned it, we were able to go back into the air towards New York. People were so relieved. Oh, finally. Okay. Now, I was still hungry. I still had a headache. No water. Very little bathroom ability. And it kind of ruined my whole day that I was supposed to spend that day in the Caribbean. Now, do you think I left things alone? No. I was in the mood. I didn't care anymore. And I was not going on an ambulance to the funny farm. I was going to New York. So I stood up again. Now, a friend I was with said, you're going to get us arrested in New York now. And I said, pretend you don't know me. And I'm saying to myself, well, I always wanted to be a lawyer. If I lose my job as a teacher, I'll become a lawyer. So I raise my hand and I say, can I have everyone's attention? And everyone immediately was still. I was shocked, the power I was having in the plane. I said, you know, we weren't treated right. We shouldn't have been in the runway for a couple hours. We shouldn't be in a place with no facilities to what, a food, no water and bathroom, no air condition. And we weren't supposed to be here till later at night anyways. I'm going to pass around two pieces of paper. One is your name, address, phone number, and this little bag here is for stamps or money for stamps. There was no internet at the time or even computers. This was in the early 70s. And I will have a petition that I will take the petition and all your name addresses. And I live in Albany, New York. And that's where the attorney general's main, you know, is in Albany. And I'll go make an appointment and I'll give them everything that, and tell them that we want something done. People shouldn't be treated like this. And maybe we'll get some money back. And everyone applauded. And they did. About 40 minutes later, I had everything I asked for. Well, from all the people, but the five people that had left, they missed out. Well, I sat down, people were coming up to me. Thank you so much. I'm glad probably we would have had to get off, but we didn't. I get back to New York and I start teaching. I get everything ready and I send it to the attorney general's office. A few weeks later, I get a phone call. Our lawyers would like to meet with you. Can we make an appointment? So I said, of course. Now I got after school appointment so I could get dressed up in my professional suit. And I went and I was led into this big room with eight lawyers and a stenographer. And there was eight empty chairs on the other side of the table. So I sat down and they said, well, is there anybody else coming from your law firm to talk to us? Uh-oh, another funny feeling. I'm not a lawyer. I teach third grade in Troy. And so there was silence. And then finally, one lawyer said, boy, she has chutzpah, which means she has nerve. Well, everyone laughed. He, the guy had broken the ice and we had a lovely, lovely conversation of everything that happened. And they said, we'll get back to you. So in the next four to six weeks, we had letters back and forth and people called me and I emailed Pete, not emailed, I mailed people. And finally, when everybody and all the questions were answered and the Attorney General's office had made phone calls to talk to people to verify what I said. I got a letter and so did everyone in the mail. All at once, we all arrived. And it said, congratulations, we have worked with Pan Am 
and they are now going to cooperate with the attorney general's office and you are going to get every penny back from PNM. Oh, I couldn't believe it actually happened. And you know, about a month later, I was watching TV. Good evening, everyone. We have a big announcement about PNM. They have filed for bankruptcy. And I'm smiling and saying, that trip of ours put the cherry on the icy. And that's probably now where they are going bankrupt. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Beverly. <laughs> Nothing like uh, putting your teacher voice into practice there. And I guess you could have been a lawyer, could have been a second career after retirement instead of the storytelling. But we're glad you're doing that instead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Up next, we've got Nina Lusiga. She is a brave woman from Stratford, Connecticut, who assures us that her very favorite place to be is outside of her comfort zone. Outside of her comfort zone is where all of Nina's stories take place. She has performed on PBS's Stories for the Stage, the International Arts and Ideas Festival, and right here at True Tales Live. Nina leads the Bridgeport Art Storytelling Exchange online and is an organizer of Pachacacha Night in Bridgeport, visual storytelling show where each story is told with 20 images projected on a large screen for 20 seconds each. I've done it because Nina encouraged me to get outside of my comfort zone. And by God, it was fun. Nina loves to travel solo. Tonight, you'll hear about one of her vacation adventures and how it continued when she returned, when she returned home. Her story is titled, Sexy Project. Hmm, that's a good thing to continue once you're returned home. All right, Nina, let's tell us your story. Thank you, Pat, great to be here tonight. I will never forget the look of extreme pleasure on his face. It's 2015 and I'm on a Caribbean cruise vacation. Just spent the day in Grenada. It was fabulous. I was on the beach, but I was coming back and I was hot. I was tired and I was thirsty. And I got to the cruise terminal and inside the cruise terminal is this Shake Shack. That's a smoothie store. And I step inside and there are these big colorful posters of tropical pleasures and I need to have one. And amidst the whirling of blenders in this pristine shop, I order a soursop shape. I've never had one, but I heard they were good for you. After I ordered, this gentleman went up to the counter to get his shake. He was in a business um, shirt and dress pants, and they handed him this coffee-colored beverage, which was in a plastic container with this bubble top and a straw sticking out. And he takes this drink, and he starts sipping through the straw like he's inhaling it. He's drinking so furiously. I have never seen anyone drink like that before. I ask him, excuse me, sir, what flavor? He stops, 
And he says, Guinness and seaweed. Uh, is it good? Without coming up for air, he nods yes. Now, I cannot imagine what that tastes like, but I want one. My soursop tastes really good, but I am not feeling the euphoria that he's feeling. I think to myself, well, it's time to get back on the boat, but at the next stop, St. Lucia, I'm going to find that shake. Well, the next day I go to the beach and I ask around and I had a great time at the beach, but I couldn't find that Guinness and seaweed shake. On the cab ride back to the boat, I asked the driver, can I ask you a question? He says, sure. Why is it that every time that I ask about Guinness and Seamoth shakes, I get this really strange look and he turns his head and he laughs. He goes, oh, that's because they're a male love potion. They're not made for women. And I said, thank you. And I stayed quiet for the rest of the ride. He does tell me we make them at home all the time, but you're not going to find them by the cruise port. When I got out of the cab, I am stoked. I, when I get home, I'm going to find out more about this because this sounds like it could improve my love life. And when I get home, I'm not sure how to go about it. So I called Chef Raquel. She's a local entrepreneur who specializes in healthy eating. She referred me to a mixologist. His name was Gregory. I called him and he goes, hi, Nina. You can call me Bootleg Greg. He specializes in boozy cocktails made of all kinds of natural fruits and herbs and vegetables. Greg, I was wondering if you could help me find more about these Guinness and seaweed shakes. He goes, oh yeah, no problem. I grew up in Jamaica and my daddy was a root man. He knew all, all things about herbs and natural plants. Well, I wanna let you know that what you're referring to, the seaweed, that's called sea moss or Irish moss. And we harvest it off the shores of Jamaica and the fishermen pull it in and then dry it out and sell it along the road sand. And we make these beverages out of them. But I have good news for you. They aren't just for men. They're for women, too. I used to live in the town next to you in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I'm living in Florida now. And I, I have to tell you, you can find it in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Let me tell you how. He explains more about it. He says, you know, Irish moss is known to strengthen the back and the core which means it improves sexual performance. Well, I take out my notepad and I start writing down all the details. And he pretty much gives me a roadmap 
of where I can find the Irish moss beverages and who to speak to at each of these establishments. The most popular brand, Gregory tells me, is called Big Bamboo. You know that big green stalky plant that's really thick that they grow in the Caribbean and other tropical places? Well, I thank Gregory profusely. And I say goodbye and I hang up the phone. Before I could lose my nerve, I jumped into my car to start looking for it. And I went to the first place on his list and it's called Root Man's Kitchen. And I have such a good feeling about this place. I'm going to get my Irish moss shake there. And I walk in and it's a little hole in the wall restaurant with the little hop table, hot tables and has some takeout food, not really a sit in restaurant. And I said, good afternoon. I am interested in sea moss shakes. I hear they're Caribbean aphrodisiacs. And the guy behind the counter says, um, I've heard of them. They're very healthy for you. They improve the nervous system and the circulatory system. Do you have any? And he's looking at me like, lady, mind your manners. Do you know that you're asking for the natural form of Viagra? Did you hear me? I, I, I'm interested in buying some. He goes, I'm sorry, we're all sold out. And I was disappointed, but at least I had my shopping list. So I went to the next place and that's the international supermarket. And they specialize in all kinds of Jamaican products. And I step into, it's a rather large supermarket. I step in right by the entrance. There is this whole wall of energy drinks and right at eye level is a whole shelf of big bamboo. So I take the two cans of the bamboo and I put it into my crook of my hand. And then I head off to the spice section because I have it in my head. I don't just want to drink the prepared beverage. I want to make the home brew myself. And I find everything but one, the icing glass. By the refrigerated section, there was this elderly woman and she was dressed like a home health aide. And she, you know, she had one of those plastic red shopping baskets over her arm. And I said, excuse me, ma'am, I'm interested in making SEMA shakes. Do you know where I can find the icing glass? I can't find that ingredient. And she goes, no. And and she goes, let me explain. I don't make them. They're too hard to make. I buy the prepared things just like what you have in your arm. I want to let you know they really work. Oh, thank you. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more. I am doing personal research as a public service to senior citizens in Connecticut. They do not know the bedroom benefits of Irish moss. She goes, hmm, what do you, else do you want to know? 
well, can you tell me how to prepare it? Sure. You take a can of Guinness, that's the dark beer, and a can of the Irish moss, and then you pour it into a blender, and then you add oats. You mean like Quaker? She goes, yeah, it's really healthy for you. So you then you mix it up and then you drink it. And I can see this far away look in her eyes like she's thinking about something romantic. And I'm thinking, Yahoo, I hit pay dirt. I got the information I need to take the next step. And this was unlike me, you know, I'm a very direct person. I don't beat around the bush. But in this case, I spoke to her woman to woman and she stopped what she was doing and helped me out. Now I was a corporate chemist for 30 years and I wanted to create the best experiment with reproducible results, which means I'm going to have to do testing of this Irish moss drink a lot. And it's not that hard to do because it actually tastes quite good. It tastes between a mix of like a white Russian cocktail and salted caramel. So I mixed them and I shared them and I enjoyed them. And at, at the end of each experiment, I looked at my face in the mirror and I will never forget the look of extreme pleasure on my face. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Nina. I'm kind of anxious to, uh, to try it. No, I mean, you, you so you're going to go into business as a, a former corporate chemist and these out into uh, like New Hampshire? Well, actually, um, I have a can right here to show your audience of the big bamboo. And I did call the company up. It's called Eve Sales um, this morning. They're located in Bronx, New York. And unfortunately, there is none in New Hampshire. The closest is in Massachusetts. But I happen to have um, web links that you can order some. You can get them. Uh, you can get them from Amazon. And this is not a commercial, by the way. Get them Amazon. But it blew my mind this morning to, when I did some more research that they have them online at Walmart. So cheers. So um, the good news, I actually have two cans of uh, Irish moss drink. And um, I'd like to gift one to a member of the um, True Tales Live team. I was wondering if uh, John Lovering was available. I would like to go through the magic of Zoom to pass him a can. So here we go. One, two, three. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. Oh, oh thank you very much. That's that's great. I think you gave it to the wrong guy, though. I no, have oh, come on, Dan. I'm gonna I'm gonna shake I'm gonna shake it up, and I'm gonna pour it out just a little bit so people can see its consistency. You can see. Oh, that looks so good. It's a real. It's really really thick, and it's very. So um, whenever 
whether you drink it yourself or gift it another, you're going to be quite popular. So cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Woo! I really appreciate I it. I drank it straight. I don't want to dilute it. <laughs> Thank you, Nina. Thank you, John. Good speaking with you. Well, and thanks to all of our tellers. Um, we have do have a few minutes here at the end before we move on to the formal interview to do some Q&A. So if you haven't yet, go ahead and um, enter into the chat any questions that you have, and I will try to keep track of them. Um, the, the interview will be at Beverly, so I'll especially try to focus on some questions here for Tina and Nina. Um, and how about Nina, since you, since you just went, um, here, I have a couple for you. First of all, I wanted to know, were there specifically, this was a specific, supposedly specifically a men's love potion, was there a, a women's love potion version out there somewhere? Did you stumble across anything like that? No, what I learned is that it works both on men and women. You don't have to tweak the formula. So it's just- the One thing I don't share in the story, it, it, it's also thought to improve fertility. So I just warn, uh, warn folks out there so they don't get caught by surprise after they enjoy their cocktail. Okay, so it's just propaganda that it was only for men. Yeah, um, yeah, that was the local. That was the local chat. Got it. And are you otherwise a home brewer, or is this your first foray into being your own home brewer? Well, you know, it, it gave me ideas of how, you know thinking about the harbinger theme. It it kind of gave me the ideas of how I would take this one step further. And my dream is to open a food beverage truck where I offer all kinds of cocktails with uh, special ingredients to enhance your life. And you can like then, and I don't think I don't think I would like take it to like a farmer's market, but you can then rent me for your party, bachelorette, bachelor, engagement, whatever. I think I think I got the white space on this, and then I've got the expertise and authority by being a corporate chemist. But I think the one, the, the magical thing ab about this story is you never really think of Caribbean islands as having all these natural herbs like they do in the Amazon, but there are treasure troves of all kinds of folkloric medicine. So it was interesting to stumble upon that. And is that the, um, so does, do people here know this, the old song, the big bamboo? I not my, it looks like most people don't. I thought that was a lot of people knew that. It sounds um, familiar, but and um, not really. Okay, do, Nina, do you know? Is it about this? Do you know the song? And do you know that it's? Uh, if it's I don't, about, I don't, I I think it's a coincidence. I mean, it, I it's maybe maybe I'm gonna have to look up the lyrics. I I I don't I don't fully remember it. Oh, it is about sex. There's no oh. question about that. I just wondered if it was connected to the uh, the drink as well. I guess we're going to have to call. I'm going to have to write the company and ask them. 
have to do some research here. There's like seven versions of the song on, on YouTube these days with the old album cover and things like that. So folks can, can look that up. And then my other question, and I actually had, I'm not as that surprised about the oats being in there because I do know that oats are supposed to be a nervous system tonic. So I wondered, has this changed your relationship to your morning uh, uh, oatmeal as well? Oh, well, I, I, I actually um, didn't eat oatmeal until I tasted the big bamboo. Now there's lots of oatmeal in my closet. That's what I thought. Cool, fun. <laughs> Thanks, Nina. Um, I have a few here for Tina as well. Um, let's see. Okay, so here we know. Um, uh, here we go. Let's see. First, Tina. So when you saw the king and swam ashore. David wants to know if there were any negative outcomes. Like, did you get in any trouble for doing that? Not at all. No, we got our cameras back too. You know, going out the gate. <laughs> yeah, right. and you know what? He's only like, he was only like, I don't know, five feet tall maybe, and almost as round. I mean, you just can't miss him when you do see him, if you do ever see him. I think he died, but uh, yeah, he was different. How yeah. long? How long did you live in Bahrain? Just about a year. Yeah. Um. Now we've heard other stories that you've told, or some of us have, um, about various places that you lived. I wonder how many and which different Middle Eastern countries did you live in, Tina? I I lived in Bahrain. Like we paid rent and everything there. In Saudi Arabia, I was three months. I was stationed in. Saudi Arabia with the Air Force. So I can't say I lived there, but I was there long enough to uh, have a countdown to get out, you know? Yeah. I think that counts as living there. Um, was it, Tina, was it ever clear what the hitchhiker guy wanted? Did you, did he want to go to a particular place? Did you ever sort out what was going on with that? I, you know what? We think he really was taking us to this place to swim. I mean, he didn't know how to tell us about the beach. So he took us to a place to swim because that's how you talk to everybody when you don't talk their language, right? I really think he took us to that swimming cellar hole, whatever it was, place. Yeah. That was a pretty scary part of that story for me. <laughs> it actually worked out fine, but you really had no idea at the time, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, another question that we have here, after these, these summers in, in the Middle East that you spent, do New England summers, are they just super easy? Are you just, other people are complaining and you're like, oh, come on, this is nothing. <laughs> I don't know, you acclimate, right? You really do. Cause I know like in Saudi Arabia, when it would get down to 75 or something, I'd put a jacket on and feel ridiculous because I got to write home and say, I am out of my mind to be putting a jacket on. But when it's 120 something, that's a 50 degree change. I know they're having these problems out like Arizona nowadays and stuff. And I do think of that, man, I know how hot that is. It's hot. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And they talk about not being acclimated. They are not acclimated to that. <sighs> it's hot. Yeah. Okay. Um, we are just about out of time here. So, um, yeah. And like I said, we are going to hear um, David ask a number of questions to Beverly, which is why I, I did not ask her any. So you'll get to hear more from her. But for now, let me uh, say a few things before we get to the interview portion. Thanks to everyone for being with us tonight, especially our three amazing tellers and our exciting, wonderful, happy audience that we just love to see here live. Thank you so much. We are soon to move Beverly Schwartz, but first a few other things. Our next True Tales Live Zoom show is on Tuesday, November 30th at 7 p.m. with a theme of transformations. You can get the link to register at truetaleslivenh.org. We would love to hear your story. While our 2021 calendar is full, our dates, plans, and themes for 2022 have been released. You can find those on our website and also our Facebook page, and they'll come out in our newsletter soon. We'll be starting the year off on Zoom, then hope to transition to in-person shows back at PPM TV in the spring. So especially those of you who are from afar, uh, January, February, and March will still be on Zoom so you can still, still join in with us. We encourage you to attend one of our monthly workshops. Those are, for now, sticking on Zoom. They're from 7 to 8.30, usually on the first Tuesday of the month in November. Because of elections, we move it to the second. So um, November 9th is the next one, 7 to 8.30. You can get feedback on your story and practice telling on Zoom. You can contact us at info at truetaleslivenh.org to become a teller and find out more. And also the links to register for the workshops are also on our website, truetaleslivenh.org. Watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m., Saturdays at 1 p.m., and anytime as video on demand or a podcast. Again, online, you can easily access all of those options. Let's thank some of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Beddingfield, Sam Adams, Kamisha Foley, and myself, Amy Antonucci. So before we move to the Backstory 15-minute interview with Beverly Schwartz, please join us to kind of shake off the Zoom cobwebs here. We're going to have one minute, literally one minute, of movement and fun with our True Tales dance party. We've been having a great time with this and really hope you'll have on your video and in move even just a little. It can, it can be chair dancing, that's totally fine. You might wanna to switch to gallery view though, and if you wanna stand up, go for it. John is going to play for us the song. So I'm gonna turn it over to John for our one minute before um, we turn to the backstory interview. Mm -hmm. 